let's go ahead and I'll say a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father God, thank you for this day. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, um, thank you. God, thank you. That I don't want to take for granted the fact that you've given us life today, that you've given us the freedom to meet in this place um, where we can focus our minds and our hearts and our, our full being on you. And so I pray that you would um, just glorify yourself during this hour and all the breakouts that are going on. God, uh, use us to teach truth clearly and correctly. I pray that uh, in this breakout, God, that you would give us all just uh, the ability to pay attention and to really focus in on your truth. Um, and I pray that we would be a, a, a people that are dedicated to the gospel and dedicated to uh, contending for the faith that you've given us. In Christ's name, amen. So this breakout um, is called Doctrine Worth Dying For. And so what I want to do is um, one, I want to walk through what, basically, I want to get to what the essential core doctrines of Christianity are. Um, to look at what makes us uniquely Christian. Um, I want to look at the doctrines that if, we re- if anybody rejects them, they really don't have a right to call themselves Christians. Um, so I want to look at those core doctrines. Um, I want to look at why they're so important in, in, um, in defending the faith. And also, and then at the end, look at, you know, okay, why? Why would these be doctrines worth dying for? And why have people for the past 2,000 years given their lives for the issues that we're going to talk about today? Um, so first thing I want to do is kind of, doctrine itself can kind of be like just a weird word. Um, but basically when we say doctrine, we're ta- it just means teaching. It just means, and, and when we say like the core doctrines of Christianity... We're talking about the essential core teachings of the scriptures that make us unique as Christians, that are essential to being a Christian, okay? So those essential teachings. Um, now, from the beginning, what and, and why this is so important and why scripture itself emphasizes the importance of knowing doctrine, of having um, what, what we'll look at here in a minute, what's called sound doctrine, is because from the beginning, the enemy has tried to use the word of God against God's people. Um, the enemy has tried to, to take God's word and to pervert it, to twist it, to manipulate it, to lead people away from the one true living God. Okay? Um, that happens in the garden. It's exactly what the serpent did in order to seduce Eve and, by extension, Adam, away from the one command that Yahweh had given them, to eat of the fruit. He takes the the words of God and twists them and perverts them. And so then we see that play out throughout Scripture where the harshest language in the Bible is reserved for false teachers and false prophets. In the Old Testament, it was really clear for the children of Israel that if a false prophet came among them, they were to pick up rocks and throw rocks at these men until they were dead. That's pretty serious. Um, In the New Testament, Jesus himself says this in Matthew 7. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And I think, yeah, do we have that on there? Okay. Um, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their fruits. Um, he goes on to say basically that you'll know them by, you know, good plants give good fruit, bad give bad fruit. Um, so we'll be able to tell them. 
But he says that they're, they come in sheep's clothing. And the point is that the people that we have to be on guard against come into the church. They come into the church and they try to look like us, act like us, talk like us. Um, but inwardly, they're the enemy. Inwardly, they want to devour believers. Um, they want to devour our faith and, and bring us away from the truth of God's word. Um, and, and again, this is, this is Jesus talking. And I think a, a really important analogy, because um, in our own time, the, I mean, the history of the church, doctrine has been under attack. Um, even as, as the New Testament was being written, large portions of the New Testament were written to combat false teaching. Um, so, so when Paul writes Colossians, he's, he's combating the idea that Jesus is just this higher being, um, a little bit higher than man, but a little bit lower than God. And so in chapter one, he makes it perfectly clear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He upholds and defends and contends for the deity of Christ. All right. And so since then we've had to defend the faith. We've had to contend for the faith. Um, and in our time right now, one of the things in our culture, in our American Christianity culture, um, one of the things that's under attack is the idea of doctrine itself. Is the idea that um, doctrine is like kind of like become like a dirty word, a dirty term that what a lot of people are teaching um, is that it's not so much in, so much about what we believe as much as it is about what we do. It's not about orthodoxy. It's not about right belief. It's about orthopraxy. It's about right behavior. Um, and it sounds good when they talk about it because they talk about how we have to care for the poor and, and widows and orphans. Um, and we need to help people that are oppressed and don't have clean drinking water. And that's all true. And it's all right. But we do that because of our right beliefs, that they're not separated, that they're married together. And that if we don't have right beliefs, then all those right actions... Ultimately, the scripture says your righteousness is like filthy rags before God. It's just self-righteous human religion that does not honor God. Um, and so that the idea of doctrine itself is under attack where they'll say, you know, if you if if you try to answer and say, no, the scriptures teach this. Jesus is God. You have to believe that to be saved. They would say, Okay, so you've got it all figured out. You've got the answers. That's the most arrogant thing you can do is tell somebody what, what they have to believe. Um, so they attack the idea of doctrine itself. And so that's why it's so important for you and me, one, to know what we believe. That, that these doctrines are things that, are, that we're grounded in ourselves and that we're able to contend for. Um, but also, and hopefully, if I can stay focused well enough, we'll get to talk about the difference between the major doctrines, the essential doctrines of the faith, faith alongside of the doctrines that in Christianity we can agree to disagree on, um, things that we shouldn't fight over, that we shouldn't separate over. But here's what's frustrating is that, I mean, even, even this week, we got different denominations represented, and we split over these secondary issues and sometimes that's okay. Like we have strong convictions. Um, so maybe it's better that we can still partner on the gospel, but worship in separate buildings, that, that can be all right. But what's frustrating is we don't get together on the gospel because of those secondary issues. But then these false teachers come along and across denominational boards, people buy their books, they read their blogs, they show their videos, and they swallow in 
all the false teaching and heresy um, that's attacking the major doctrines. And it's because for too long we focused in on the secondary issues of Scripture and not the core issues. Um, So, Paul says this in Galatians 1 to the church. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you and the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please man? For I still please... If- For if I still pleased man, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This is huge. Paul uses uses harsh terms here. He says, what's going on here at this church is these people would come in and they were preaching the gospel. The gospel just like we would preach it here at Snowbird. Except for one thing. They were telling the people, they were called Judaizers. And they were telling the people that they had to add circumcision to faith and repentance. So yeah. Repent of your sins. Put your faith and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and be circumcised. And Paul said, that's a different gospel. That is a different gospel. And if anybody comes and preaches that, let them be accursed. And what the word really means is let them be cut off. Let them go to hell. Let them be accursed. That's strong language. The Bible has no tolerance for false teaching that perverts the gospel that drags people away from Christ in true salvation. Second um, Corinthians 11 says this, For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if he is, thing if he is, if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. These guys are crafty. Usually, I mean, the ones that are prevalent in our day are amazing communicators. Um, Preach the gospel with, or preach something, with authority and power in in an attractive way that's not offensive, um, that draws people in, that's an easy thing to believe, it, it removes the things like God's justice and his wrath, so there's no personal conviction for sin. Um, it removes the idea of needing to tell other people to repent and to come to Christ, so there's no um, you know, inward feeling that I'm going to offend another human being. We can all just love each other and just do the things that Christ did in his life and remove all the difficult things from Scripture. And it's seductive because they transform themselves as if they were messengers of light, as if their message is beautiful and it's seductive. And here's what's so important. And here's what I want you to get out of this breakout. Is that what you and I need to have is a, is a biblical filter in our brain, in our spirit, that everything else has to come through. Whether it's something you hear at this camp um, from Brody or Kahuna or a breakout or a small group leader or something your pastor says or youth pastor or a guy on television, or a book somebody recommends, or a video you watch on YouTube, everything that we hear needs to go through the filter of God's Word. 
which means that you and I have to put the time in to have God's word hidden in our heart and stored in our brain so that as we hear truth, as, as we hear people preach, we can check it against the truth as we can filter it through there. Does that make sense? All right, so what's next on my slide? Sound doctrine. Um, sound doctrine, when we say that, again, it just means uh, healthy doctrine or um, teaching without mixture or error. Okay? Um, go to the next one. So uh, in Titus chapter 2, it says this. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, teaching scripture without mixture or error, and all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Um, Jude says this about contending for the faith. It says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness or basically basically just lustful desires and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if they outright denied God and Christ, they wouldn't get very far, but they deny the one true God and the one true Jesus by seducing people away um, because their doctrine isn't sound. It's mixed with error. It's perverted. It's twisted. It's enough truth um, for somebody to buy into it, but enough perversion to lead them away from Christ. And so what Jude's saying is we have to contend for the faith. Um, This word at first I thought when I, I was studying for this and the image in my brain was... Um, like the Roman soldiers, have you ever seen, you know, even like from the movie Gladiator, which is probably an old movie now, but the Roman soldiers would lock shields together um, and then they would slowly kind of like move forward to attack their enemy. They'd all have their shields together, kind of form this wall, almost like a, a tank moving forward. And at first in my mind, I just pictured, okay, it's, it's, it's the church contending for the faith is that we lock shields and we hold our ground. Um, and we, so when false teachers come in, we're able to deflect them and keep them out of our fellowship when really the more I study the word, it's more of a a word that takes action. It's an aggressive word that we're contending for the faith. It is that picture that, yeah, we lock shields, um, because we unite on the core teachings, the clear essential teachings of the Bible. We unite on those things and we move forward against anybody that would preach anything different. We're aggressive in pointing them out, exposing their false teaching, and removing them from a, a place of influence. Warning them of their own error, but not allowing them to influence those that are um, our brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, what's the next one? Major doctrines. So real quick, we'll, uh, and, and all I really want to do here is just kind of give you a taste um, give you a taste. This list could be longer, could be much, much more in depth, but I w- hopefully you'll be able to take notes. And then my desire would be that you would take these things. And as, as you personally study through scripture, what I would recommend, um, if you went to Spencer's how to study the Bible breakout, which you didn't because it's happening right now. Um, 
but if you've gone in past years or you get to listen to the podcast, uh, we really recommend that you go through one book of the Bible at a time and slowly, uh, verse by verse, work your way through for your personal devotion. As you do that, you're going to run into all these major doctrines. Um, they're all over the place. And as you study in context from one book of the Bible, when you get to these issues, time out, take as long as it, you need to study those issues to see what the whole of Scripture says about them. So you're going to get your youth pastor involved in that. You're going to get your pastor, godly men and women that you know that are students of the Word of God to help you know, okay, what does the whole Bible say about these issues? What's essential for me to believe about this and teach others about this? Um, So, major doctrines. The one that I have listed first is the Word of God. If the Word of God doesn't have its proper place in our hearts and our minds, then everything else on the list is subject to change, is subject to fall. If we don't see the Bible as the, the Bible teaches itself to be, um, like this one guy, his name is Rob Bell. He's a real popular teacher. Eh, it's kind of waning. Um, but uh, one of the big things he teaches is that the scriptures are not the divine oracles of God, that they're not the inspired text, that they're written by men. He'll say inspired by God, but he doesn't mean the same thing as what I mean when I say inspired by God. Because he believes it's the, the duty of every generation and every culture to reinterpret the word of God for their day. He calls it a redemptive hermeneutic or a trajectory hermeneutic. Uh, that's just a fancy way of saying um, we get to interpret the Bible however the heck we want, however it fits into our context. Which is not true, because what the scripture says about itself is that it's authoritative, um, it's inerrant, and it's infallible. Um, so real quick, let me read Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. It says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second um, Peter says, that the words of God were given by the holy, holy men of God um, as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. The, the Bible is, is, is literally God-breathed. So the Bible is not the work of man. God used men, and he used their personalities, and he used their culture. He used known constructs to that time um, in order to explain deep spiritual things. And he did it in such a way that even 2,000 years later, we can look back into history um, and study those cultures and study those languages so we know exactly what God was saying. That the Bible that we have today are the, the words that God wanted us to have in order to reveal himself, in order to reveal himself ultimately and most fully in the person of Christ. And we have that. Um, and so the Bible is our authority. Um, and we either submit to it or we reject it. And to reject the scriptures is to reject God. And there's no other way to go about it. We don't get to come to the Bible and say, what does this mean to me? We come to the Bible and say, what is God saying to me? What is he revealing about himself to me? And how then should I respond? Um, it's uh, inerrant. There's, there's, Sometimes there will be apparent contradictions. If you went to Spencer's breakout on the reliability of Scripture, a really good, um, I encourage you to listen to that um, when you get home if you didn't go. Really good showing that 
you know, people talk about contradictions in Scripture, and really they're pretty easily diffused. People have been trying to shoot holes in the Scriptures for a long time, and they stand because of the Word of God. Um, All right, the next thing is the person and character of God. The first thing is unity. What I mean by that is that there is one God, right? This is Israel's anthem in the Old Testament, that there is one God, that Yahweh is the one true living God, and all other gods are made by man. At best, they're demonic, that there is one God, and he's, he's the God of the Bible, but that he's in three persons, that God is a triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Um, distinct in personalities, but the same in essence, that that the Father is God, that Jesus is God, that the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and on and on, that there is distinction in personhood, but the same in essence, that there is one God in three persons. You try to define it more than that, you get in trouble. Um, Lots of people have fallen into heresy trying to articulate too far the Trinity. Um, some people sell a lot of books and make a lot of people emotional and think they understand God better by writing on the Trinity, and all they really do is fall into heresy. Um, so, but we need to uphold that. It's an essential belief for the Christian faith is to understand that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, all fully God. Um, that He's immutable. Big word, it just means that He does not change. In, um, where is this? In Malachi... He says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Literally, I am Yahweh, I do not change. He says the same thing in James. Um, so that God does not change, really important. God is holy. I mean, and Brody went over this, uh, did a great job on Tuesday night talking about the holiness of God, um, the ju- that he's just. He did, uh, again, we walked through that, that, that God cannot have anything to do with sin because he's holy. And because he's just, he holds everybody accountable to his standard of right and wrong, um, which is based on his very character, that God is also love, all right? Now, a lot of times uh, when we talk about God, we just want to focus in on his love, but if we don't uphold all these other truths about God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, if we don't uphold his unity, his triunity, his unchangeable nature, his holiness, his justice, which his wrath flows out of. If we don't uphold all those things, we take his love out of context, and all we're left with is a human sentiment where you say to somebody, God loves you. Oh, good. I love me too. You know, like it's just, there's no power behind it. But when you put the love of God in the context of his character as a whole, it, it means something. And there's, there's a lot of weight there. All right. Next thing is, uh, I think, mankind. Yep, there we are. That we're fallen, sinful, and unable to save ourselves. Again, this is essential. To be a believer, to be a Christian, this is what the scriptures teach about us, that we're fallen. That we come from Adam and Eve who sinned. Romans 5 is clear that we inherit Adam's guilt, Adam's sin. And out of the sin nature that we're born with, we commit sins. Um, and that we're unable to save ourselves. What, I, what I, all I'm trying to say there is that there is nothing that we can do to earn back a right relationship with God. That we cannot save ourselves. We can't do enough good to outweigh the bad. Um, that somebody couldn't try hard enough their whole life and be accepted by God. That we're all sinful. We all fall short. We all deserve eternal punishment in hell. 
which is the next point that we must uphold as believers, is that final judgment, is that there is final judgment, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, and that judgment is eternal um, in what we call hell. Um, This is another doctrine that's uh, fiercely under attack today. Um, There are those that say, uh, hell, the language of hell in scripture, that's just metaphor. What hell really is, is when people live their lives here on earth, disconnected from how God would like them to act. When people withhold their money from the poor, uh, when people oppress other people, that's hell. It's hell on earth. Yeah, those are bad things, but that is not what scripture describes as hell. Jesus himself speaks most clearly about this. Um, and uh, I'll just write this down if you have it, or if you have a notepad. I don't know why that was hard for me to say just then. A notepad. There we go. Um, Matthew 25, 30 through 46. Um, Jesus is very clear that hell is a place of eternal punishment. Eternal. Um, Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15 Romans 1, 16 through 18, uh, and we could go on. If you want more, you can come up and, and get scripture passages from me. But that ultimately, final judgment, and, and Jesus is clear. He's the one who judges, and those who aren't Christians will be judged according to their deeds. People will be judged based on how they've lived, and we've all lived sinful. And, and sin brings about death. The wages of sin is death. And Scripture is clear that that death is eternal. Um, so, the next one is the person of Christ that we must uphold who Jesus is. I start here with uh, the virgin birth. Obviously, we've already talked about in the section with God that Jesus is God, but that we can fully see so clearly through the virgin birth, the doctrine of the virgin birth, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that he's born sinless. He's not born with the sin nature that you and I have, right? Because remember when the Holy or the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have the Messiah. And she says, how can this be? I've never known a man. I've never had sex. And the angel says, it's because the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be called holy. Jesus will be born separate from sin. He doesn't have the sin nature that you and I have. That's why in Romans, it refers to Jesus as a second Adam. He comes into the world in a similar state than Adam did, that Adam was created without sin. He was good. Um, But then Jesus lives a sinless life, never yielding to temptation, because even though the the writer of Hebrews tells us he's tempted in every way as we are because he's a real human being. But in submission to God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Son never yields to temptation. And so he's sinless. And therefore lives a righteous life. Um, So, and that Jesus' death was a penal substitutionary atonement. I intentionally left a lot of these big words in because my challenge to you is that our culture, and a culture is a culture, right? Like all cultures aren't of God. So they all got their issues. But in our culture, they would like you to think nothing better of yourselves than that you're young and you should have fun and that this life is about your entertainment. So enjoy your life now while you have no responsibilities. And that is a lie. If you're a Christian, you're a bought with the blood of Jesus, you belong to him, 
And he has a plan for your life. And it's not that you waste your days entertaining yourself. It's that you seek him and you be conformed to his image and that you be about the gospel. So when you study scripture and you make your life about the study of scripture, you get a translation of the Bible that's literal, that doesn't replace words like penal substitutionary atonement. But when you come across them, you just do your homework to find out what the Bible is teaching about them. Don't get a watered-down version so you can live a watered-down Christianity. Boom. All right. Um, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, it's a, it's a judicial term. It means that a punishment is going to be laid down, that justice must be served. And so Christ on the cross, the Bible in 2 Corinthians says that God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God the Father sees Jesus on the cross as a sinner. He imputes, he reckons Jesus to be guilty of the sin that we've committed. And so then um, in our place as a substitute, Jesus takes the wrath of God. He makes atonement for our sin by embracing and absorbing and satisfying the wrath of God. So that for the believer, there's no wrath. Jesus took it all. What would have taken me all of eternity to pay for in hell, Jesus absorbed for me and for all those who will come to him in repentance and faith, which that call goes out to every human being ever, come to him in repentance, and, it, and, and that Christ has satisfied God's wrath that there's none left over. Penal substitutionary atonement. This is the heart of Christianity. And this doctrine is fiercely under attack in our churches. There's one man, his name is Brian McLaren. He's a heretic. And out of his own mouth, he said stuff like, yeah, the cross isn't really the center for Christians today because he's talking about this whole that it's all about just loving people the way Jesus loved people, um, which is a false idea about who Jesus is. But that idea that we just love people like Jesus loved people, we don't really preach. He says, the cross is a distraction. It's a distraction from the way that Jesus really wants us to live. He says that, um, he quotes a guy that he respects and says, yeah, it's kind of like this idea that if I wanted to forgive my wife for something she did for me, then I would have to go kick the dog. That's what he likens this idea to, which is the center of the gospel, the center of the mission that Christ came on. He likens it to kicking a dog. Um, he also quotes men that say that the idea that God the Father would punish Jesus for our sins is just divine child abuse. And it's the most unattractive idea he can think of. This is our hope. If you're, you can't reject this and call yourself a Christian. If you reject this, you have no right to call yourself a Christian. You believe something else and you've been deceived. All right. Um... Bodily resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're dumb people and we don't have any hope. But cool thing is, Jesus said, I have the power to lay down my life and the power to take it back up. And that's exactly what he did. He rose from the dead. And by doing so, he defeated sin, death, and hell. And he validated everything he claimed. So when Jesus claimed to be God, he showed it to be true by raising from the dead. When he claimed to be the only way of salvation... He showed it to be true by raising from the dead. Um, and that ultimately that Christ will return. Uh, a lot of different opinions on how that's going to play out. Um, and there's room for disagreement in that. 
But we must uphold that the scripture is clear. Jesus is going to return, that this isn't going to keep going on as it always has. Um, last point is salvation. And that it is by uh, God's grace alone. Um, let me read Ephesians 2. I don't really have time, but basically um, what he's talking about is that we're saved by God's grace alone. That it's not of works, at least any of us should boast, but we're saved by grace through faith. Based on the person and work of Jesus. Um, that justification, another word that you need to know what it means, that the issue of justification Again, this is, this is the heart of the gospel, that we don't work our way to heaven. This is what separates us from a lot of other religions, the religion of Catholicism, um, the Mormon religion, the Jehovah Witness religion, all these other religions and these other um, cults that kind of spring out of Christianity. This sets, up, sets us apart, that we are justified, that we are in a legal sense, declared righteous by God. Even though we're sinners, what happens is Christ takes our sin upon himself on the cross, and in, in its place, when we come to him in repentance and faith, he gives us the righteousness that he earned in 33 years of perfectly obeying the Father, never yielding to temptation. He gives that right life to us that we lack. Um, so we're justified, we're declared righteous, we're forgiven of our sins by faith. And I put up there by repentant faith, because in the scriptures, sometimes it talks about repentance. Sometimes it talks about faith. Sometimes they're together. But the idea is that these two terms are married together, that you can't really trust in Jesus unless you really see your need for him as a savior. And the only way you're going to see your need for a savior is if you first come to terms with your guilt before a holy God and you realize you deserve hell and you can't save yourself. And so you just throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, renouncing your sin, confessing that you're broken and that you're sinful and that you need a savior. And so to truly trust in Christ, you first have to loosen your grip on, on your sin. Um, I got this definition wrote down for repentance, a heartfelt sorrow for sin, um, a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ to embrace Christ, to trust in Christ, not blind faith. Christianity isn't blind faith. Christianity puts its faith in the person and work of Jesus as revealed in the New Testament. Um, we stand firm on the authority of God's word um, and that it's in Christ alone, that there's no other name given among men by which we're to be saved, but the name of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All right. So, these are the core doctrines. Again, here's a taste. Please, the rest, these are the things that we must contend for. Not, we don't have to be ugly. We don't have to be self-righteous. But we do not yield for these things. We die on the hill of these issues. We lock arms. I don't care what denomination you're from. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We can be united in the preaching of the gospel over these issues. The other issues are secondary, and we can agree to disagree. We unite on this, and we contend against false teaching based on these teachings of Scripture that are clear, that are core, that are essential. Um, real quick, there's some really good tools out there, um, theology books. Uh, one that we recommend here, um, we don't agree necessarily with everything he teaches on secondary issues, uh, but his theology book and his books are written really clear and on a level that I can understand. 
so that we all can understand. Uh, it's a guy named uh, Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem. He wrote a, a book called Systematic Theology. He spells systematic with an S. Um, he wrote a book called Christian Doctrine, which is just a smaller version of the uh, systematic book. And then he also wrote a book called 20 Things Every Christian Should Believe, I, I think. Um, so a lot of good resources. He writes really clear um, on the essential teachings of Scripture, really lays out what, um, for all these issues, all the Scripture that really goes into building these doctrines. Um, let me say this. about I made the comment about we don't need to be ugly. Here's the point. Here, here's, here's the balance. Is we don't defend a list of facts. This isn't primarily about a list of things that we believe intellectually. Everything on that list represents who Jesus truly is. We're, what we defend, what we contend for, is the exaltation of Jesus in our own lives and across the globe. And so when people pervert the teachings of the gospel, they're perverting the teachings of who Jesus is, and if you pervert that, there is no hope for salvation. And if you're a believer, we're here on planet Earth, we should be about the gospel. We want to see people come to know Jesus as he is. So that's what we defend. That's why we should be passionate about doctrine. It's not a nerdy subject for smart people to go study. This is about Jesus. And if we're going to truly know him, we have to know him from Scripture. Um, there's this guy, his name is Bob something or other, and he said this. I can't pronounce his last name. No offense, Bob. He said this. Regardless of what we think or feel, there is no authentic worship of God without a right knowledge of God. This is huge because a lot of you feel pressure because you have friends that are Catholic, Mormon, Jehovah Witness, or some just weird denomination, and you think, ah, they're a good person, and they talk about Jesus. Listen. In love, but boldly, we need to share the truth of Scripture with them because apart from a right knowledge of who God is, there is no authentic worship. They don't really know God. So they need to know God from the Scriptures. Okay. The reason why um, I entitled this Doctrine Worth Dying For is because it it is just that. And for 2,000 years, and I want you to think about it in these terms, Our brothers and sisters in Christ have died for the gospel, have been imprisoned and suffered for the gospel. Godly men have watched their wives and children eaten by lions because the government told them to stop preaching Christ. And they said, no, this is it. This is the only hope. And so they preached this message. Um, There's this one guy, his name was Polycarp. Um, if you're thinking, you know, maybe one day if your store names away for a kid one day, Polycarp, excellent. Boy or girl, could go either way. Um, he lived around, or he died around A.D. 155. He was the bishop of uh, Smyrna. And he was brought before the authorities, and he was told to quit preaching Christ. And the, the government official said, swear, renounce Christ, and I will release you. Just reproach Christ. Just deny Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him. And he never once wronged me. How then shall I blasphemy my king who saved me? So they burned him alive at the stake. 
and he was still preaching the gospel, and so they ran him through with a sword to make it faster. And throughout history, right now on our planet, more Christians are persecuted for the gospel than ever before. And they're persecuted for the things that we just walked through. And it is a slap in the face of our brothers and sisters in Christ when people stand up and say, and it's not really what you believe, it's about how you live. Absolutely not. What we believe is essential. And people have bled and died for it. And they're suffering along with Christ. So we need to be willing to contend for it in our own lives. You need to take whatever time necessary to put the word of God in your mind so that everything else has to go through that filter so that you yourself aren't led astray. And so that you can contend for the faith and you can rightly preach the gospel to people. All right, real quick. Can you put that uh, diagram thingy up there? All right. Just a simple way for me to think about this, kind of like a bullseye in the center, absolute truths of scripture. These are the the core doctrines that we've been talking about here in the center. That outer ring, the next ring is like, uh, we call it convictions. The idea here is maybe an issue like baptism. Um, Our denominations have strong conviction on baptism, and that's fine. If you can back it up scripturally with clear scripture that you're interpreting with an honest interpretation, then we we can agree to disagree. But maybe it's such a contradiction that we can unite on the preaching of the gospel. But maybe it's okay that we do church a little differently in your church than in my church. But if you start saying stuff like, you have to be baptized to be saved, now we got an issue. Because you're messing with justification by faith. And, and let me say this. A lot of our churches that typically come to this camp will look at a, a denomination that puts too much emphasis on baptism, of immersion. Um, and they'll say, ah, they're getting into heresy. Let me say this. Anything that we put emphasis on other than the person in the work of Christ and faith in that is in danger of heresy. So sometimes with our sinner's prayer, we can take the sinner's prayer and put too much emphasis on it. A person is only saved through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and repenting and putting their faith in him by God's grace alone taking a class at some point in their life, being baptized as an infant. All these things, if we can defend them scripturally for what they mean, that's fine. But if we put our faith in those things, it becomes heresy. And if you have a question about that, I'd love to talk to those. Are, those that's a serious issue. Talk to your youth pastors about that. Um, outside of that ring, uh, opinion, you know, you start getting into the end times, you know, is Jesus going to come and rapture the church out? Is there a rapture? You know, is he coming before all hell breaks loose? Or is he coming in the middle of hell breaking loose? Or is he waiting until hell kind of fizzles out? When's he coming? We don't know. There's different opinions. That's fine. We can talk about it. Still hang out. Um, questions or mystery. These are things that there's just not real clear uh, scriptural ground to hold a firm um, position on. And so we can talk about it and go, I don't know. You don't know. All right. Want to go get a bagel? Sure. All right. So just just a general outline that the absolutes, those are the things that we must all hold to. Convictions. Okay, we can be united on the gospel and move forward. Uh, opinions. Let's not, let's not make a big deal. There's not enough time. Save that for people who just want to study. Let's unite over the gospel and contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I want a minute over. Let's pray real quick. If you have any questions, you can come talk to me.
Lord Jesus, love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for these students. God, I pray that you would uh, just give us an awesome day of wreck, but I pray that your gospel would be on our hearts and our minds all day long. In Christ's name, amen.